Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. This fall, we are opening up the letter of 1 John. We believe it is a timely book in the life of the church. John is writing to a church that is divided over theological differences and confusion about how to follow Jesus in the midst of division. John's answer is love. God's love for us is immeasurable, and so our love for one another should be as well. It's a call to unity and care for one another in the midst of division. We're glad that you've joined us for this series. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30 a.m. We live in a world of competing truth claims. To see that, all you have to do is turn on your television set and kind of switch before between different news networks and you'll get all kinds of different perspectives. Sometimes you'll walk away and wonder, are they even talking about the same world? You know, their perspective is so different and all of them are proclaiming to tell you the truth. Or you can just go on the internet and try to investigate an issue and you'll find that no matter what the issue is, there's all kinds of competing opinions about what's real, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. Uh, That's just the world we live in. That is also true when it comes to the spiritual dimension of life. Uh, From new age gurus to uh, prosperity gospel celebrities, there's just a spectrum of people proclaiming a spiritual truth. And it raises the issue of how do we know who to believe, especially when it comes to the spiritual realm. When it comes to questions about God and the scriptures and doctrine and the spiritual realm of existence and how we should live out our faith, how do you know what is true and how do you know what is false? I really believe that we need to become spiritually discerning people. Um, In fact, I, I think we need to be spiritual cuppers. Do you know what a cupper is? I'm friends with Brad Haycoop. He owns Atlas Coffee, and I've learned from him that there are these people who have developed their palate and their taste buds really well. In fact, they get certified in this with the ability to taste coffee. And they taste coffee and they grade the beans. And they become experts at discerning where coffee came from and what grade it is and how it tastes and what what its elements are. In fact, I am told that if a cupper is really good, you can blindfold them, give them a taste of coffee. They just get a little spoonful and they'll be able to tell you that it's from Guatemala. It's from this state in Guatemala. It was grown at this altitude. And in fact, it was grown on this mountain. I mean, they are very discerning with their taste buds. I think we need become spiritual cuppers. We need to develop the ability to discern what is true and what is false. That has always been an issue for the church. I think it is even more so in our world. But if you go back to the early church, they had a more difficult time with that because they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Old Testament unless you were really rich or or had access to a synagogue. Uh, The creeds were not out. The early churches met around the the kingdom, the world. 
the creeds developed later. They basically are a laundry list of the issues that the, the church debated. So those came later. At best, uh, an early church in the New Testament might have a few copies of letters from apostles. They had stories about Jesus that were passed down verbally. What they were most reliant on is traveling preachers and prophets. They would show up and they would claim that they were inspired uh, by the Spirit, empowered by Him, and spoke with the authority of the apostles. And that's how they learned about the faith. But what that meant is they had to discern whether the teacher was a false prophet or a true prophet, a false teacher or a true teacher. They had to become incredibly discerning. Well, in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, John gives them a way of being discerning people. In fact, he gives them a command to test the spirits and then gives two tests that they are to use to evaluate whether someone is speaking the truth or speaking falsehood. We're going to look at that passage today, and I think it's pretty applicable to ourselves and to our situation. Uh, 1 John chapter 1. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 1. We're going to look at the, the command that we're to test the spirits first. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, it's interesting that John says test the spirits, because what he's saying is the people who are traveling called themselves pneumatics. In other words, they, they were spirit-empowered. And John is recognizing that there is something behind the teaching. So you don't just evaluate the teacher. You try to evaluate the power that is behind the teacher. So John says test, test the spirits. Now, there's a couple of assumptions that John makes in this verse that I think we need to pull out. The first is this. John has a very binary view of life. And then there, there are two spirits in the world. There is, this, there is evil and there is good. There is truth and there is error. There is right and there is wrong. Um, there's God's viewpoint and there's the viewpoint of the world. There is true prophets and there are false prophets. There's the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. That's how John sees the world. John is not a big fan of relativism or this notion that a person uh, can believe whatever they want and it's okay as long as it's true for them. John doesn't buy that. For John, truth is something that's objective and outside of a person and, and exists as a standard uh, that you can measure things up to. And it, is, it exists as truth irregardless of personal opinion or bias or feelings or personal preference. You know, our world is filled with people who think that truth is relative. The reality is, though, most people don't live like truth is relative because it's very difficult to live like truth is relative. Um, Roger Weingart is a philosophy professor at the University of Illinois. And he teaches an uh, introductory class to ethics. And when the students come in, he asks them, how many of you believe that truth is relative? And usually somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the kids raise their hand. And he acknowledges that. And then he begins to describe the class to them, the books they're going to have to read, the papers they're going to have to write, the dates of the test. And eventually he gets to the grading system. And he tells them this. He says, in my class, those people who are tall because they've had such an advantage in life, they're going to flunk. 
And those people who are short because they're challenged in life, they're going to get A's. Tall people flunk, short people, yeah. <laughs> and the students react. They say, well, that's not fair. You should grade us on how well we know the material of the class. You ought to evaluate our tests. And he says, wait a, wait a second. You believe truth is relative. You're relativists. What are you doing using words like ought and should? That implies there's some standard. There's no standard. I can make truth what I want it to be. It's my class. So if I want the tall people to fail and the short people to get A's, that's up to me, right? And your relativists, you just have to say, well, that's fine. It's true for him. They don't particularly like that. See, it's very hard to live out this notion that all truth is relative. John has a very binary view of life. The second thing you need to note about John is John believes that truth is essential, that it actually matters. We kind of live in a time where people often think that doctrine and theology and dogma and beliefs about God and the world, eh, they're nice and somebody has to deal with that, but I don't. They don't really matter much. What really matters is my personal experience. What really matters is my sincerity. That's, that's what matters when it comes to thing of faith and religion. Now, folks, experience is important, okay? But I want you to know that experience is not the final authority on truth. All experience needs to be interpreted. And therefore, to some degree, is somewhat subjective, John is saying, look, truth exists outside of you. And you have to even measure your experience up to it. It has to be interpreted by what you know is true and exists. He believes in this notion that there's core truths about God. We call that doctrine. And they're important. Truth matters. Do you know why truth matters? Because truth shapes the way you think. And the way you think determines the decisions you make and how you live. If you think correctly, if you grasp truth correctly, then that'll translate into better decisions and into a better way of living. Truth isn't something you can just disregard. Truth matters. That's why John says, hey, you need a way to evaluate these teachers who, who come. Because you need to know which ones are speaking the truth and which ones are, are, are not speaking the truth or speaking falsehood. Because that will translate into how you think and what you believe and eventually the decisions you make and eventually in how you live. Truth matters. So if discerning truth, what is truth and what is false, is important and testing the spirits is important, how do you do that? John's gonna suggest two, two truths. One has to do with their view of Jesus, and the other has to do with their view or their mindset, okay? We're gonna look at the, the, the first of those, their view of Jesus, verses two and three. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. John is a bit circular in his writing. 
He's actually talked about this notion of Jesus' identity back in chapter 2 and this idea of the Antichrist. And Paul, Jocelyn, a couple of weeks ago did a great job of preaching on that passage. You might want to go back and listen to it. But the Antichrist here is not this political figure that we see in Revelation. He really is the, this power that pushes back on the notion of who Jesus is. Anyway, I, I want us to explore this idea uh, of uh, acknowledging Jesus Christ come in the flesh as a key test a, a little deeper. And I want us to ask this, what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? It's really important to understand that. It, I think it speaks to two issues. One, his identity, and two, his work. For his identity, let's look at that for a moment. To say Jesus Christ is really to say that Jesus is the Christ. A lot of times we, we see Jesus Christ, we don't actually think it's his last name, but we treat it like it is his last name. <laughs> but Christ is a title. And it, you'd be correct to say, or translate this phrase, Jesus is the Christ. Christ literally means the anointed one. And it's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew concept of the Messiah. In other words, what John is saying is you need to understand that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament talked about, the, this hero who was hoped for, who was going to be the son of God, who was going to be king, who was coming to provide redemption because humanity fell and, and, and this Messiah was going to be the answer to, to that fall in terms of making things right. And Jesus is that one. And the best way to grab a hold of it is, is the understanding that Christ literally means the anointed one and Messiah means the anointed one. And the reason they're anointed is because you anoint a king. So they need to understand that this Jesus who came is king. In fact, we, we, we try to communicate that the gospel, the good news, is really this notion that Jesus, the son of God, has become king through his life and his death, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God to the position of power and all authority. That's the gospel, that Jesus was made king. He, he's the one who was the Messiah coming from old. And because he has entered into this world, and that's his work, that he became in flesh, that he entered into this world so that he could, what? Provide redemption, that he could defeat evil, defeat sin, and redeem humanity and all creation. That's the identity of Jesus. But what does it mean then to, to acknowledge that? It's a lot more than simply giving intellectual assent to the reality of who Jesus is. You know, the one group in the New Testament who seems to understand the reality of who Jesus is, is the demons, right? They, they all know who Jesus is, that he's the son of God coming to the flesh and they all know what he's about and what he's doing. So they give him intellectual assent. They have intellectual knowledge but they don't acknowledge him because acknowledgement always implies a bit of an act of submission. It, let me give you an example. Imagine you're driving down the highway and suddenly you see red lights behind you following you. You have a decision to make at that point as to whether or not you're going to simply give intellectual assent to the reality of the cop or you're going to actually acknowledge him bow to his authority and pull your car over. You see, when you submit to his authority, that's true 
acknowledgement. And that's the issue here. Are we submitting to the reality that Jesus is king? What has happened, I think, at times in our Christian culture is that we have really minimized the identity of Jesus. We, we, we talk a lot about the benefits of him being savior, but we don't emphasize as much the implications of him being king. And because of that, we have people who embrace Jesus as savior, but only give a tip of the hat or lip service to the notion that he's king. In fact, uh, um, what happens, people invite Jesus into their lives, but they never really submit to his authority. George Barna, who is a researcher and analyzes uh, kind of Christian culture through surveys and such, um, notes this. He says, most adults uh, in America, not quite six and 10, believe Jesus was God. Six and 10. More than six and 10 Americans say they have made a a personal commitment to Jesus, and moreover, that commitment is still important to their life today. You hear that? Six people out, we've got the message out, right? Jesus is your savior, and six in 10 Americans have made a commitment to him and, and see that as important. But it's not translating into the way they think or the way they live. Barna has also found that only 9% of self-professing Christians have what he would call a biblical worldview. They do not think and view life like followers of Jesus ought to think and view life. In fact, what he says is that for most professing Christians, about 88%, almost 90% have a syncretic, syncretistic, sorry, syncretistic worldview view. That means they're just taking pieces of their world. It's like a a truth smorgasbord, right? You go up and you say, oh, I I like this notion. Jesus can be my savior. I think I'll take that. But I I don't like this idea that that truth is absolute. I like the notion that truth is relative so I can decide what is true on my own. I'll take some of that. Don't like the the notion that, that there's right and wrong. I like the notion that I can determine what is right and wrong. So I'll take a piece of that. Uh, I don't like the notion that, that Jesus is the only way to God. I like the notion that what matters is faith. You can determine and find your own way to God. So I'll take some of that. So you come up with this hodgepodge of a worldview that is really pulling from all these different truth claims and they don't make any sense. But that's where most people are at. And then Barna finds not only are we confused in terms of our thinking, but then professed Christians also get confused in terms of how they live. Again and again, Barna has found that those who profess Christ don't live any differently than those who don't profess Christ. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to divorce, when it comes to how they use their money, when it comes to their sexuality, there's no difference. It's kind of like this. Our heart is a boardroom. And sitting at the table of that boardroom are all the different parts of ourselves. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the right religious self, and a host of others. 
And the committee is always uh, debating and arguing and voting about decisions and how things ought to be done. That's the kind of people we are, and there's two ways we can accept Jesus. One way is to invite him into that committee, give him a seat at the table, and give him a vote. But if that's what we do, then he's simply another vote at the table. He's one more complication. He's a nice add-on, but he's not determinative. The other way to accept Jesus is to say, hey, my life isn't working. Please come in and, and fire my committee, every last one of them. And I hand myself over to you. I'm your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me as you see fit. You see, that's acknowledging Jesus in terms of submitting to his kingship. It's not just giving Jesus a seat at the table, but giving him the only seat at the table. It means giving him the seat and subtracting all the idols. It's bowing the knee exclusively to Jesus. Look, folks, what we do, what we believe about Jesus and how we respond to him whether we just invite him in and kind of tip our hats and give him lip service or truly give him total allegiance and bend our knee matters. Because what you do with Jesus determines your eternal destiny. He is the key to life. Karl Barth used to say, tell me your Christology, what you believe about Jesus, and I will tell you who you are. And he's right. Tell me about what you believe about Jesus and I will tell you your status before God. And John is saying, that's the first test. What does this teacher really believe about Jesus, his identity and his work? And does he truly acknowledge him, not just with his lips or with the tip of a hat, but with his lifestyle and how he lives? That's the first way you test the spirit. The second way you test the spirit has to do with evaluating their mindset. First John 4 through 6 says this, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, that is the spirits, the false teachers, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. John is saying, look, there, there are two mindsets in the world, God's and the world's. Your mindset simply is a system of beliefs that shape how you make sense of the world yourself. It influences how you think, how you feel, how you behave in any given situation. It's kind of your orientation or your worldview. John is saying there's two of them. There's a God-centered mindset and there's a world-centered mindset. The God-centered mindset is the orientation perspective that puts God at the center of all things. It values truth and reflects wisdom, love, justice, mercy, grace, and it resonates with God's people. In other words, the God-centered mindset values compassion, love of others. It understands that this world is not the end, that we should live for the world to come. It believes in the supernatural realm and the unseen world. It values character and virtue above success and money. 
Um, it does not live life looking out simply for itself or its tribe, but seeks to serve others rather than have them serve them. A God-centered mindset is not about accumulation of power, but seeks to give it away. And its highest, its highest value is to seek the kingdom, God's kingdom, his rule and reign, his justice above all else. It's a God-centered mindset. The world-centered mindset is an orientation that leaves the true God out of the picture and often is in opposition to or even hostile to him. The world is humanity without God. It has a different value system and a distorted perspective on life and people. Its mindset resonates with those who do not know God. In other words, a world-centered mindset is self-centered, not other-centered. It believes that this world is all there is and questions the reality of the unseen realm. It argues that there's no absolute truth. Truth is relative. Uh, right and wrong are simply for us to determine. A world-centered mindset values success and money and all the trinkets of the world. It lives life looking out for itself and for its tribe, even at the expense of others. And it wants to accumulate power for its own sake. John is saying, look, a teacher either reflects one or the others or a combination. You have to ask yourself, is this more of a worldly mindset or a God mindset? Look at their teaching. Sometimes it's subtle, but you have to be discerning. But note this, and this is really important. Behind both mindsets is a spiritual influence. Each is animated and empowered by an opposing entity. That is why back in verse 1, John said, test the spirits. Test the spirits. You see, we, we can make the mistake of thinking that religious diversity and religious views are, are merely intellectual or cognitive phenomena like political and social views. But this text is saying, uh-uh. Behind these differing mindsets are real spiritual influences. There is a spiritual reality, a transcendent realm, and it plays out in our beliefs and our perspectives and how we think. In other words, God plays out in these and Satan plays out in our thinking. Now, I want you to understand this. We understand the fact that we live in the midst of a spiritual conflict the fight between good and evil. But when we think about that, we typically think that gets played out simply in the supernatural realm in kind of weird ways. You know, there's angels and there's demons and they're kind of floating around and we kind of enter that. Do you know that most of that conflict happens in the realm of ideas? In other words, the supernatural battle is fought in terms of how we think. When Paul writes about uh, engaging in this spiritual conflict in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he writes this. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, how we fight the spiritual battle really is by learning to think and have the mind, think like and have the mind of Christ. If that's true, then theology becomes really important. Having people who are 
intellectuals and thinkers and scholars and academics and experts in their field and education becomes critical. You know, in the Christian subculture, there's a bit of an anti-intellectualism. We see those people who, 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 who think and write as kind of the elitists, and we want to kind of push them aside. And I want to tell you that they're on the front lines of the spiritual conflict in our world because that conflict is fought out in the realm of ideas and people's thinking and mindset. And we desperately need them. Because how you think matters. Because how you think determines how you live. That's why at Waterstone we've been so committed to preaching the Bible. Because what we're trying to do is shape people's mind, their mindset, and give them a biblical worldview. <laughs> you know, people get on me because I preach too long. And I do. But let me tell you why. I mean, people always tell me, Nick, don't you know that people only have a, a 20 minute span of attention? And I push back and I say, yeah, and your span of attention is subject to your will. You want to pay attention for more than 20 minutes. Guess what? You can. How long was the last movie you watched? Did you, did you just zone off? No, but here's why. People are paying attention to media hours upon hours upon hours a week. In fact, one of the news channels uh, had to change their icon, it's called a Chiron, that they put down in the corner of the picture. They found out that people were turning on their television sets to their channel at the, when they got up in the morning and then not turning it off until they went to bed and their Chiron was burning itself into their television sets and destroying the screen. Folks, when you're listening to the news media outlets, and I don't care which one it is, they are not reflecting a God-centered worldview. And what you're subjecting yourself is to the world's way of thinking. And if you're listening to it 24 hours a day, guess what? You're letting them shape how you think. And then you come to church and you want to give us 20 minutes to develop a biblical world of thinking. So sometimes I'm going to preach a bit too long. That's a really self-serving illustration, I'll have you know. <laughs> Folks, we need to carefully evaluate what we're listening to and put some boundaries around it. Because what's happening is we're believing the lies of the world. Here are some of the things that people who identify as Christians, some of the lies they embrace. This is us, right? Barna's research again. 71% of professing Christians consider feelings, experience, or the input of family and friends as their most trusted source of moral guidance. Really, I, I thought the scriptures were the best source of moral guidance. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Faith is key. Jesus is optional. Really? 64% say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 
No, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. Folks, at the core of our faith is this notion that we're saved by grace, not by our works. Fifty-two percent claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. Those are the lies of the world. And people who claim to follow Christ are buying them. John says, we live in a world of competing truth claims. A world in which there are false spirits and true spirits. And thus we have to test them. The first test is do they acknowledge the identity and work of Christ, that he's the king who has come in the flesh. And their second test is do they have a, center, a, a world-centered or a God-centered mindset. So I want to close this morning by giving you two words of advice that I think speak to the world and the cultural moment we live in, where truth claims have to be tested and we find that the world we live in is often antagonistic, if not hostile, to the people of God and his truth. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you two words of advice. They, they come from this text, chapter four, verse four. John writes, you, dear children, are from God and, I, and have overcome them. That is the spirits and the false teachers because the one who is in you, that is God, is greater than the one who is in the world, that is Satan. First piece of advice. Don't be afraid. We have overcome the spirits of the world because the one in us, God, is greater than the one in the world, Satan. Overcome, this Greek word nakao, implies a conflict where one party emerges victorious. And John's point is we have won the spiritual battle that's taking place in the realm of ideas because our God is greater and is true. And we don't have to fear the world's way of thinking or its orientation and its false spirits. Folks, I meet people all the time who are believers who are fear-driven in their lives, in their thinking, in their view of the world, in their politics. They're scared of the future. They're scared of where things are heading. They're scared for their family and their kids, and themselves. If you're afraid, I have a word for you. And I want to remind you that ultimately, things are headed to the new heavens and new earth. You don't have to be afraid about where things are going to end up. God's one. You don't have to be scared. In fact, 1 John 4, 18, John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. You see, fear makes people angry and hateful and self-protective. It makes us see the people of the world, those who disagree with us as the enemy. 
And folks, I want you to know, they are not the enemy. They may be blinded and captured by the enemy, the prince and the power of the air, but they are not the enemy. I like what David Brooks writes. He, he's a columnist, conservative columnist, um, who, who was Jewish and has been making a, a journey towards faith. Interesting to read and listen to. But he notes this, he says, the people who we often see as the enemy are people who have souls, something in them that has no size, weight, shape, or color, but has infinite value. Nobody is simply a sack of skin filled with DNA. Nobody is a sack of skin that we do not have to love. Everyone you meet has a soul, and that makes them of infinite value. And that makes them an object of God's love and our love. And David Brooks was doing a podcast with uh, John Mark Comer. He's a, a, a pastor, and they did this uh, Live No Lies podcast. And um, Comer asked Brooks, this question, what is the role of the Christian faith in America's cultural moment? And Brooks responds this way, and I I thought he was brilliant. He says, the first thing I would say is just be not afraid. What I find most troubling about many churches is the siege mentality in the sense that the culture is against us. Don't think the whole culture is out to get you. The siege mentality is what leads to desperation in the fight. When I look at the church, especially being in the secular world where he writes, You have what the whole world wants. This is brilliant. Since you have a spiritual vocabulary, you have an ultimate story with a happy ending. Why don't you just share that? And it is from a position of abundance. He goes on to talk about the wisdom that followers of Jesus have, access to the ability to find meaning, to to translate morals into life, an answer to the reality of death, wisdom about how to do marriage and community and just about how to do life. We have what the world wants and we have what the world needs. We don't need to be afraid. So the first piece of advice is don't don't be afraid. The second is speak the truth but do it with love. You know, our society prizes religious tolerance and pluralism, and oftentimes to such a degree that many of us have begun to believe that if we test the spirits or, or question the teaching, it, it betrays kind of a narrowness of vision that is overly critical in judgment. And we think if we do question something, uh, it's best then just to keep quiet and be silent or just share it with our friends who already agree with us. But I, I wanna suggest to you that the world, the world needs the truth and it needs us to speak it. We just need to learn to speak it in a way they can hear it, to do it with love. I ran across a great example of this in an article in Christianity Today by Rosario Butterfield called, called By Trainwreck Conversion. 
Uh, in the article, she tells a bit of her story. Rosario Butterfield was a professor of English and women's studies. Um, she identified herself as a leftist, lesbian, feminist, and she felt hated by the Christian right. She recalls Pat Robertson quipping at a political convention. Uh, uh, she recalls what he said and, and pushed her over the edge. He, he said, she writes, he said this, feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. That's not speaking the truth in love. She writes, stupid, pointless, menacing, that's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. That's funny, you can laugh at that. <laughs> in 1997, she wrote a, a critical and negative article about promise keepers in the local paper. The article um, generated so many responses that she actually put two Xerox boxes on her, her desk, one for the hate mail and one for the fan mail. And she writes this, she says, one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind, a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How do you, do you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article, rather he asked me to defend my presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. With the letter, she goes on to say, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on plaque cards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world, they met my friends, we did book exchanges, we talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate, Together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. Rosario at that point begins reading the Bible. And over time it began to have an impact 
and she began a long journey to Jesus. She writes, then one ordinary day I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Loy was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my he could make right my world. Folks, we don't have to hate the world. We don't have to fear it. We just need to be discerning people who understand truth and know how to speak it in love in a way that the world can hear. That's the challenge. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. It's not easy even to know the truth sometimes and even harder to speak it in a way that the world can hear, to speak in love. But we pray that by the Spirit of Christ who is in us, the one who is stronger than the one in the world, we ask that, that by that Spirit you would give us the ability to speak the truth in love so that the world may hear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.